excuse. Last time we were talking about not only envy, but beforehand we talked about pride. And so what we want to do today is make a connection between pride, envy, and talk again about Cantos 13 through 15. Technically, we're going to talk about 16 as well. And so what I want to start or launch this lecture with is remember that what the problem with pride is for Dante is that it is a disease of the mind that ensures that you move in a direction opposite from your goals. So it's fairly clear why you don't want to be proud and also why it is considered the foundation of all sin because it skews your perspective which keeps you from getting what you want. If the purpose of your life is to accomplish good goals and your perspective is skewed so that you cannot accomplish them, is that very useful? Answer is absolutely not. And so the question I put to you before I started the lecture today was, what is the problem with envy? And so we know that the proud are crushed under rocks, rocks that were the foundation of their sense, the rocks on which they stood, which allowed them to look up or down on those around them. Down, down on them. And so now they have to balance their perspective by being bent in half by a rock above them. Second thing to keep in mind, they stare at images in order to have some effect on their souls, beings, minds, characters. The reason they look at images is because now their perspective has been bent downward where it was once bent up, or vice versa. So these images are supposed to have a corrective sort of effect on their seeing of reality, on how they see things. And so the question I asked you before class is, why is it that A, the envious are blind, B, huddled together, and C, what is it about envy that makes it so unproductive? Or rather, what is it about envy that makes it A, another list, part of uh, the foundation of all sin, because we recall that envy and pride did not have their specific circles in the inferno, suggesting that envy and pride are a part of zero sins or all sins? All sins. All sins. And so, the big question I've been saying that I've been circling around and trying to figure out with you is, what is the big problem with envy? And so hopefully today, we can at least set up the answer and come to it by seminar on Thursday. So, let's recall, just very quickly, we met the envious. The envious are crowded together with iron wire shutting their eyes, blinding them. And we suggested that like Marley from A Christmas Carol, who had created the chains on their eyes just as Marley had chains on his body? Themselves. Themselves, that's right. And we met Sapia, and she said, even though my name is Sapia, which from Sapio in Italian, and Sapiens in Latin means wisdom or knowledge, she says, even though my name means wisdom, I was not wise. And so this is her example of it. She betted against her own people, the Sienese, were then defeated at Cola or Coya di Valdelsa, and against her own nephew, who was then killed, Provenzon Salvani. And so we thought that the essence of envy must be hating good for others. Whenever something good happens for someone else, you get sad. Whenever something bad happens to someone else, you get what? Happy. And there's a German word for a very similar concept called Schadenfreude. And so she says, even though I was named Sapia, I was not wise. Cool. We then had three examples of love. So apparently what the opposing virtue is to the vice or sin of envy is love. Love 
at least in the medieval Christian context that Dante is speaking about, is better defined as what? Since this is the Christmas season, we're probably thinking these sorts of thoughts. Love, which manifests in sacrifice, we actually call what? What is it that you do when you are giving something to someone else that you are not required to give? You are giving them what? Charity. Charity. And so love, which is proven by sacrifice, is called charity. And so apparently how one expiates envy, which is the desire for bad things to happen to others rather than good, just generally speaking, is to give good things to people which they do not necessarily Deserve. And that sort of strikes me as good as a parallel. That strikes me as proper. Because if envy is believing that those around you have something they do not deserve, then paradoxically seemingly, or parallelly seeming, it seems to be that giving things to people that they do not necessarily deserve alters your perspective in some way that helps you to balance it. Okay, that's a good start. The three examples we talked about, and I think you have these written, were two from the New Testament and one from the Greco-Roman tradition. Remember, the first example is this. Jesus is talking to Mary, and they're at a wedding. At the wedding, there is no wine. And in fact, we hear from a disembodied voice, a disembodied voice because the envious cannot what? See. See, so they have to hear this art. So it is a different medium of art. So it is a different sort of appeal to them, and yet still just as much art as the sculptures in pride, the, what we hear in Latin is vinum non habit, which means they have not wine. They do not have wine. And so what this Jesus character does is he changes the water, and you should keep in mind that water is a purifying agent. He turns it into wine. Wine is a purifying or intoxicating element. Intoxicating. So when he is present at this place, he changes the very atmosphere or feeling of it from just a sort of lame uh, time without a binding element into a time in which all people are bound together. It happens to be a wedding. Perhaps you might symbolically understand this, that when there is a governing idea drawing people together, it has a, uh, it has a, hmm, how do I even put this? It has a, an intoxicating effect on people. In fact, the psychologists today, when people gather for, say, basketball games and say you win a championship, know that a, uh, a fact or a, a phenomenon called de-individuation will occur, where you will stop thinking simply about yourself and you will indulge in sort of a warm feeling of togetherness with people, which seems to be why people go to sporting games, right? You go, you're around a bunch of people who are wearing the same colors and supporting the same teams as you. You say, rah, rah, go our team, and we hate the other team, right? In fact, sometimes people commit acts of violence based on that. In fact, my undergrad, Marquette, when we won the national championship many, many, many years ago, supposedly students ran down Wisconsin Avenue uh, looting and turning, even turned over a car at one point, which, which is very interesting, suggesting that that which connects people together has a very strong effect on the behavior of those people. But I don't want to get too much into that. The second example we get is I am Orestes, and we recall that this was a very beautiful example of charity. Orestes was being held, um, at least in this account of Orestes, this isn't actually how it goes down in the Aura style. 
he is about to be held and sentenced to death for killing his mother, Clytemnestra. The person who is going to execute him, at least in this story, asks, who is Orestes? And recall that he had a best friend that he grew up with in exile named Pylades. Pylades then stands up and says, I am Orestes, so that Orestes will not die, so much does he love his friend. Very similar to the Roman story of Spartacus, where the great leader of the slave revolt, Spartacus, tries to stand up and say he's Spartacus so that everybody doesn't die. All the people around him who were a part of his movement then stood up and said they were Spartacus. If one dies, who dies? All die. Which is a very charitable way of thinking about things, because then you are giving up your life to honor a principle of reciprocity with somebody, which we consider an ultimate level sacrifice. You're giving up that which is most valuable to you to illustrate that there is something more valuable than yourself. So you are embodying an internal principle with your finite life, which does seem to be the highest manifestation of heroism that we can embody. Uh, and if we can think of something higher, let's talk about it in the seminar because that is where we want to aim. All right. And so recall also that Orestes then stood up and said, no, I'm Orestes. He refused to let his friend take his place for him. And you might notice if you really focus on that story that it does make really warm feelings appeal, uh, appear in you. Perhaps some compassion, perhaps thinking that is exactly what a friendship should be. That one friend is willing to die for the other and the other is unwilling to let his friend die for him. That is sort of like the opposite of the story of um, Judas and Jesus, right? Where one friend sacrifices the other for money. That's quite the opposite from one friend attempting to sacrifice himself for another. So the third example comes from the Sermon on the Mount. It is a disembodied saying of, love those who despitefully use you. That's not an, it's not an excellent translation. Simpler translation is, love those who harm you. We all wrinkle our nose at that. We think, why would we love those who harm us? And it comes from a larger quote, love your enemies, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that persecute and calumniate you. To calumniate you, calumny, is when somebody talks smack on you. Tries to hurt your reputation, by the way. It's like libel or slander is calumny. The reason why that is included seems to be that when somebody attempts to harm you physically or harm your character, A, you might acquire new information about yourself that you did not like, that nobody was willing to give to you. If someone hates you, might they see your flaws very clearly and wish to illustrate those to you in order to harm you? Yes, of course. That, of course, is painful. What is useful about that? You might learn what? What your flaws are. Then you can do what with them in a purgatorial way? Try and fix them. So can those who hate you actually offer you more valuable information than those who like you, even though they attempt to give it to you just to hurt you? Yes, yes, yes. In fact, you know, even when it comes to, say, war, one reason that people suggest that, say, current, the current state of Israel is so advanced in its technology is precisely because they are always at a state of war with um, the surrounding area, um, uh, which is you know both a national and a religious conflict, depending on well who you talk to. But you should you do of course know that there's there has been a major conflict in the Middle East not only since the Middle Ages but even today between the Palestinians and the Israelites uh, or the Israelis as they're now called, not Israelites. So good, 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 good. So, those who hate you might teach you something about yourself that you did not know. Even if they do not wish to give it to you out of charity, 
It is often the case that those who dislike you will, without provocation, tell you something about yourself that you do not want to hear from them. Is that not true? Yes, you don't usually have to ask much at all. So, we talked about that. Here are the two characters you really need to know from the end of this. You only need to know two things about them. One is a Ghibelline, one is a Guelph. Why is this important to Envy? Well, think about it. If Envy is the error of thought that causes you to think the grass is always greener on the other side, you get to the other side, you see the grass is not green, or not as green as you thought it was, what do you then know about your perspective? A, it's false, and B, those who you thought had something you did not often do not have that which you think they had. Because one thing I will suggest about envy is that what one does see is what someone has at the moment, but what one fails to see, which is more important, is how one came to have that. So say you see some big muscly dude and you think, man, I wish I had huge muscles like that guy. What do you not see in that moment? What it is that that man or woman had to do in order to acquire those muscles. Why would it be more important even to see the process by which a person acquires that which you want rather than even just the thing you want itself? Could it be that if you understand the process by which somebody acquires something which you want, then you could acquire it for your self? That's right. Do you think that's why the envious are shown as blind? Because when somebody around you, this is it, when somebody around you has something that you do not have, should you get angry at them for that? Or should you inquire to them how they got it? Should you, or could you, learn from them how they got to where they were? Would that be a more valuable use of your time? Yes, yes absolutely. Because then instead of sitting around doing nothing, feeling envious, and possibly acting in a negative way based on that envy, which we will see in the next couple examples, what could you do with your time? You could use it to get what you actually want. So part of the problem with envy seems to be that you waste your time being angry at others or envious of others rather than actually getting what others have that you want. And that strikes me alone as a good reason not to be envious. All right, so these characters, Guido del Duca. And you might be wondering, why is every character in the Divine Comedy called Guido? Well, here's the reason. Guido is the Italian word for guide. If somebody gives you new information, are they guiding you in some way? Are they teaching you? Yes, and so that's why we have a Guido Calvacante, a Guido del Duca. There's another famous Guido, too. I'm forgetting the, a Guido Guinizelli, who also meets in uh, the Paradiso as well. The three Guidos, they're often called. And so Guido del Duca, he was a prominent 13th century Ghibli. He calls Casentino Arezzo pizza names, hogs, curs, and wolves. The reason why you call a person an animal that is not human is often when they engage in an action which is beneath the dignity of somebody capable of rational thought. To say somebody's eating like a pig because they refuse to moderate their eating like a human can do because a human has a rational intellect. You call somebody a wolf often because they attempt to take advantage of those around them 
not realizing that it is the support of those around them that give them their greatest strength, the sort of loyalty that uh, it helps in-groups thrive. And you might call somebody a cur. I forget what a cur is, actually, exactly. But I have heard it used before. It's, used, it's sort of an older a sign. It's some sort of creature. I don't know what it is. If one of y'all want to look it up, that'd be interesting. All right. In any case, Guido is a Ghibli. Rigieri is a Guelph. They're both in purgatory. What should that tell us about the positions of the Guid or excuse me, of the Guelphs and the Ghibellines? If envy is seeing things as they are not, then the Ghibellines must think something about the Guelphs, which is not true, and the Guelphs must think something about the Ghibellines, which is equally untrue. Perhaps, perhaps what the point is here, and maybe we'll say this is a reach point, is that rather than hating each other for their opposition, they should appreciate each other because they teach each other about what each other is and stands for. That's very interesting. Very interesting idea right there. Almost as if when somebody stands against you, they give you an opportunity to learn about The most interesting person to you, yourself. Huh. I, I very rarely think of those who offer themselves in opposition to me in glowing terms, but this is making me think. All right. This is where we really need to think. We then have two disembodied voices give us examples of envy itself and the consequences of envy. One example, the first example, Hebrew, Old Testament. The second will be explicitly from Ovid's Metamorphoses, but is a Greco-Roman story. So the first example, we get this Cain figure again. What we hear in the air, 14.133, is whoever captures me will kill me. And so this is the story of Cain and Abel, the first humans born outside of Eden, the children of Adam and Eve. Cain, and I often get this wrong, I think was a was a herdsman, whereas Abel was a farmer. If somebody knows the story better than me, they can correct me. It might have been vice versa. It was vice versa. I've often, that's why I always mess it up. Abel, Abel was the farmer, and, Cain, or did I mess that up again? Abel was the herdsman. Cain was the, uh, was the farmer. They both offered gifts to a rightful authority. You might call that authority the Lord or God. This authority found Abel's gift awesome. Cain's gift, mm, kind of wanting. Think about yourselves. We're all honor students moving towards a goal at all time. You give me an essay. You get a B. Not so bad. Your friend next to you gets an A+. What might you feel about that friend next to you? Envy. You might think, why'd they get that score and I didn't? You might get upset at them. But if we're really following the line of this reasoning, what would be a much more valuable use of that feeling than to get angry or jealous or envious of your friend? To understand, to understand what they did differently from you, which enabled them to get the grade that it is you wanted to get yourself. That's very good. That's good. And so what Cain apparently should have done is asked or observed what it is that his brother did that got him the glory that he wanted. What does he do instead? Kills his brother. He goes the opposite direction. And for this, he receives some mark on his forehead and this terrible prophecy that 
And if anybody kills him, seven times the amount of people that were killed will be killed themselves. And in fact, if you ever study the Old Testament, there is some ancestor or descendant of Cain named Tubal Cain who invents weapons, I believe. And then, uh, well, 70 people per one person will be killed. And so I think the idea behind that is that once violence enters into the world, it just does what and what and what and what. It compounds, compounds, compounds exponentially. Right, 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 right. Envy for one, Abel, causes envy for all. Hmm. Interesting. It's like if you allow envy to abide in yourself, you can spread it to others. And if envy is precisely the emotion which blinds you to how things work, well then, that sounds like sort of a plague on the community. If the people, rather than sharing charitably their information with each other for how they got what it is they have, then just callously look at each other, judgmentally wishing they had what others did not, that seems like a recipe sort of for disaster, especially if you take seriously this, this idea that envy can cause which terrible action? Murder. Murder, right. Strong. Well, if envy between two people can, call mur can cause murder, what could envy between two peoples cause? War. War and the destruction of one by another, which... Hmm, perhaps is not as useful as cooperation between two. And I think I have told you before. Do you all recall just World War II? World War II, we as Americans fought against, what was the name of those three countries together? What was the general term for them? Yes? The Axis powers of the Third Reich. The Axis powers of the Third Reich. And which were the three countries of the Axis powers? Yes? Germany, Japan, and Germany, Japan, and Italy. And I think this is true for Italy, but I certainly know this is true for Japan and Germany. After we defeated them, Germany and Japan, did we raise them to the ground? Did we destroy them for all time, salt the earth? No. Though some people might have thought that that would have been okay, especially given what the Japanese did to the Chinese, human experimentation on them through Unit 731. They defined them as non-human, so they had no problem doing it, which is something that has happened throughout history. If you ever wonder how atrocity happens, that is a big reason why. Find people not as humans who are humans, then they're animals. What do we do with animals? Put them down. We eat them and we experiment on them. Even to this day, of course. But with Germany and Japan, and Germany of course killed six million of their own people. Do you know what we did after we defeated them in war? We gave them loans. Loans so that they could become rich. Why would it be in our best interest to make our former enemies rich? So then they will become, they, they will regain their strength, but instead of being bitter towards us, they will be uh, more gracious. They're more gracious towards us. They become our allies. They then trade with us and help us to become more what? Powerful and rich. And so, just a question I might ask is, ever seen a Japanese car? <laughs> ever used a Japanese piece of electronics? Ever heard of Sony or Toyota? What about German engineering? Ever seen a BMW or a Volkswagen on our streets? Did we make our enemies into our friends 
and enrich them and thus enrich ourselves. Yes. Is there something even more useful you can do with an enemy than destroy an enemy? You can do what with them, which is far more lucrative. Make them into a an ally, which means into a friend. Very interesting. Very interesting. Alright, let's move on to the second example. You don't need to write this all down. I just want you to tell you tell you this story just because it's sort of a funny story and you know, if I really wanted to look for it, I would look for the description of envy right here. Metamorphoses two. Okay, let me let me look for this really quickly. I've got the metamorphoses here. I just need to make sure that those are the right lines. All right, seven ninety one and two. <laughs> it's gonna just take me a second to do this. All right, here we are. I'm on the right story now. Mercury, Hersey, and the Glowers. I want, I want you to hear the image of envy. Okay, this is line 851 or so of Ovid's Metamorphoses book two. Just before that. She set out at once for the grimy and decaying house of envy. And I'll explain this story a little more after I just tell you I think this description of this physical description of envy should tell you just how nasty the emotion is. And this is a Greco-Roman example. Her cave was hidden deep in a sunless valley. A sunless valley. What can you not do in a sunless valley? Sea, impervious to winds, gloomy, hideously cold, never a fire burning, and eternally steeped in fog. So you definitely can't what there? See, it's foggy. It's dark. No fire can be there. No thinking or rationality can be there. When the formidable Virago Minerva arrived, she stood outside the cave. She had no right to enter as goddess of what? Wisdom. And pounded the doors with the butt of her spear. The doors flew open and revealed envy. Dining on viper meat. Which means a viper is poisonous or non-poisonous. Poisonous, which means envy is what? Poisonous. Poisonous, which means envy can spread, which kept up her venom. Minerva averted her eyes at the sight, but the other rose slowly from the ground, leaving the carcasses of the snakes half-eaten, and came sluggishly forward. When she saw the beautiful goddess in her armored glory, she groaned inside, contracted her face, turned sickly pale and shriveled up all over. Why does she do that? Why is she so upset by the appearance of Minerva Athena? She's envious. She's envious of her beauty, yes. Her eyes are askew. Ah. Her teeth black and rotted. Her breast green from bile. She vomits on herself. Ugh. And her tongue drips venom. She never smiles except at another's troubles. Her sleep is fruitless. A fitful, anxious vigil. She resents the sight of someone else's success, gnawing away at it and being gnawed in return, and is herself her own punishment. Tritonia, Minerva, though filled with loathing, spit out her message. Infect one of the daughters of Kekrops. That's the job, Aglaros. Without another word, the goddess pushed off from the earth with her spear. I think that is an excellent illustration of what envy is. And so here's the story. 
we hear a disembodied voice say, I am a glaurus who became stone. And again, keep in mind, if we get Greco-Roman and Hebrew examples of envy, they come from different times, slightly different areas of the world, and different religious secular traditions. What do we know about envy and humans? It's everywhere, right? I am a glaurus who became stone. So here's the story really quickly. There were these daughters of Kekros. He was an Athenian ruler. A glaurus was a very, or she crossed Minerva. When you cross Minerva, goddess of wisdom, what happens to you? Not good things. Not good things. Think of Arachne. Think of Pandaros. Think of Hector from the Iliad. Whenever Athena doesn't like you for some reason, things are not going to go so well for you. And so, this is what happens. She opens a chest concealing a baby that she is not supposed to. She disobeys Minerva. So we know something terrible is going to happen to her. This is what happens. Mercury, Hermes, falls in love with Glarus' beautiful sister, Hersey. We know where this is coming. One sister is beautiful, one is not. What does the non-beautiful sister feel for the beautiful sister? Envy. Envy, of course. And though we all know from the example of which woman last year that beauty is not so necessarily a virtue, but often quite the curse. Helen. Helen, very good. Which illustrates that if we felt envious about Helen, we should well look at what her life looks like with her three husbands and their infinite amounts of death around her and her taking of nepenthe or drugs in order to go to sleep at night so that she doesn't feel the weight of her emotions. We might want to think about that quite a bit in our own hearts and perhaps if we felt the same around Achilles. His life was not so great either, even though he had so many good things. So after Mercury falls in love with the Glaurus' beautiful sister, Hersa, Minerva exacts revenge by calling on Envy to make Glaurus sick with jealousy over her sister's good fortune. Does this sound like an archetypal situation like Cain and Abel? Just as two brothers, one might be jealous of the other, can we imagine two sisters being jealous of each other? Anybody want to admit that they have been jealous of their sister? Anybody ever felt that way? Yeah, very interesting, very interesting. Yes. Huh, yes. And so Mercury comes to visit Hersa, and I always love this part. Because he's the trickster god, right? Are you going to keep him as a mortal from what he wants? <laughs> Absolutely not. He is so her so what she does is she actually stands in front of Mercury at the door between him and the Glaurus. <laughs> Can you guess what he does to her? He does something rather tricky. I don't actually remember the exact detail of the story. But he does deceive her in some way. Tricky God that he is. He turns her to stone. Because is she going to keep him from being with the woman that he loves as an Olympian class God? No. No, no, no. So Indy ends up getting her petrified. Turns to stone. And so I wonder about how this example differs from the one before besides just its source. I wonder if I wanted to try it with you whether the suggestion is that whereas pride skews your vision so that you cannot work towards your goals in order to accomplish them, whether what envy does is it destroys or poisons your relationships with those you love and keeps you from deriving information that would be invaluable to you from those who hate you. It's almost as if what envy is is a poison that afflicts your relationships. And the suggestion being that your relationships, if clearly seen, would be friendships, 
which would offer you invaluable resources in the pursuit of your goals. Because what is more valuable to you than a friend as a person? What is more valuable to you as a nation than an ally? Yourself. Well, perhaps having clear perspective yourself, but the clear perspective seems to allow you to do what? To acquire what? Friends or allies, which are of, at the very least, utmost use to you, because if they are your friends or allies, they are not what to you? Enemies. And what is more dangerous to you than a person or a people who do not like you and are motivated to harm you? Is there anything as dangerous? No. No, not so far as we know. No rhino can be as devastating a force as a human. In fact, in the Iliad, right now I'm teaching through the, the, the end where Achilles returns to battle, books 20 through 24. And he's filled with rage and he's described as a ravening fire. And something interesting is in one of the similes at the end of book 20, he is described as being like a fire that is blown by a wind, which we as Californians all understand because the Santa Ana winds with some fires have recently devastated our coastline. Is that correct? Yeah. And so the reason why Achilles is compared to a fire pushed by a wind, which might be described as one of the most destructive forces possible, is that a human who is filled with rage or envy is even more destructive than a natural force pushed by wind. Thus, what is the most destructive thing possible? A human filled with negative emotion which motivates him or her to do harm to those around him or her. Hmm. And you might well want to question that. And we can do that during seminar. Is there any force in the world more destructive than a human motivated to do harm to others? I really wonder. I really wonder. Okay, and so, just to recap, envy. What others have? Lose what one has oneself. What is it that you lose? A, time. You're sitting around envying other people what they have. What are you not doing? Using your time wisely to pursue your own what? Goals. You're sitting around doing nothing. I don't know how many of you have ever done that. Looked at Instagram, spent a bunch of time just staring at somebody wishing that you had what they had. Anybody ever done that honesty moment? Well, the more appropriate use is probably to look at those people and then to what? Do what they did. But that's actually pretty what, which is why we don't want to do it. Hard, right? Why can't I just be given everything? Well, maybe that would ruin you. Second thing, possessions. Well, what's your most important possession? A, your ability to think. B, your life. You might say it's actually reverse order. I would say, yeah, maybe we could debate that. We could debate that. But you seem to lose your time, which as we know from the Purgatorio is one of your most valuable assets, especially when you're young, because you don't yet have the skills necessary to manifest that with it. To, you do not yet have the skills necessary in order to use your time as wisely as you will once you have those skills. So what you usually do with your time now when you're using it valuably is develop what? Skills. The skills that you will need in order to use your time in the wisest possible way. B, you lose that which you already possess, which time is part of that. 
which is part of what your life is. And apparently with Aglaros, well, she, she lost a whole lot more than that, right? She lost her ability to move, her ability to think, her ability to be alive. Cain lost his position within his family, his position within society, and even his sort of mental, mm, even the peace of mind that he had before he killed Abel, which you might imagine he never reacquired. And then, of course, your life and speech. You lose that as well. So envy seems to be a corrosive emotion, something that though you wish for it to destroy those around you who you are envious of, who does it truly venomously destroy? If you have venom within you, and you are a human, not a snake, what does that venom do to you? It biliously corrodes you. It destroys you. So what is the effect of envy on you? And so, whereas when you are envious, you hope for the hurt or harm of others, the very fact that you are feeling envy means that what is happening to you because of you? You are harming yourself. Well, does that help you to get to where you're going? No. Self-harm is sort of the opposite of what we were thinking. All right. That's what we're going to end for today.